Chapter Two of Physiology of the Opera by Screechy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Two. In short, I may, I am sure, with truth assert that whether in the Allegro or in the piano, the adagio, the largo, or the forte, he never had his equal. Connoisseur number one hundred and thirty famed for the even tenor of his conduct and his conduct as a tenor knickerbocker the tenor is a small man seldom exceeding the medium height his voice is comparatively speaking a small voice and consequently not likely to issue from overgrown lungs his proportions are or at least ought to be as symmetrical as possible his hair nine times out of ten is black and always curls his beard is reasonably bushy, but his moustache is the most artistically cultivated and carefully nurtured collection of hair that ever adorned the superior lip of man. His features are likely to be handsome, sometimes, however, effeminately so. His dress is a little extravagant, not extravagant in the mode and manner of a fast man or a dandy, for it is not punctiliously fashionable like that of the latter, without any deviation from Taylor's plates, neither does it resemble that of the former in the gentlemanly roughness of its appearance consequently he rejoices not in entire suits of grey or plaid those very sporting coats those english country gentlemen's shoes those amply bowed cravats and those shirts that are so resplendent with the well-executed heads of terrier dogs no the primo tenora has a passion first for satin secondly for jewellery and lastly for hats boots and gloves he dotes on satin scarves cravats and ties and his gorgeous satin vests of all the hues of the rainbow astound the saunterer on the morning promenade his love for pins studs rings and chains is almost enough to lead us to believe that his blood is mingled with that of the mohawks boots that fit like gloves and gloves that fit like the skin render him the envy of dandies his hat is smooth and glossy to an excess and its peculiar formation makes it considered un peu trop fort even by the most daring of hat fanciers the tenor rises late partly because he is naturally indolent partly because the prime basso drank him slightly exhilarated the evening previous and partly out of affectation and the desire to appear a very fine gentleman having spent a long time in making a negligee toilette he orders his breakfast seated in his comprehensive armchair and attired in all the splendour of a well-tinseled satin or velvet culotte a dazzling robe de chambre and slippers of the most brilliant colours he takes his matutinal repast and now we begin to discover some of the thousand vexations and annoyances that harass the life of this poor object of popular support his breakfast is but the skeleton of that useful and nourishing repast no rich beefsteaks no tender chops no fragrant ham nor well-seasoned omelettes transfer their nutritive properties through his system any indulgence in these wholesome articles of food is considered direct destruction to the tender organ of the tenor a hunting breakfast every day or a glass of wine at an improper hour if persisted in for any length of time it is supposed would ruin the most delightful voice that ever sung an aria a large cup of cafe au lait 
with an egg beaten in it, is all the morning meal of which the poor artiste, as he styles himself, is permitted to partake. This feat accomplished, he takes up the newspaper in which he spells out the puff which he paid the reporter to insert, and after satisfying himself that he has received his quid pro quo, he lounges away the morning until a sufficient space of time has elapsed to render the use of the voice no longer deleterious, as it is immediately after eating. And then come two or three hours of study that is no trifle. The tenor is a man, and it seems to be a great moral law that whether it come in the form of labor, disease, and wa or indigestion, suffering shall be the badge of all our tribe. Even prima donnas, who defy gods and men with more temerity than all living creatures, are constrained to concede the obligation of this universal moral edict. The tenor then yields homage to human nature and the public, in the labor of climbing stubborn scales, rehearsing new operas, and sometimes, though not often, in receiving the impertinence of arrogant prima donnas during several hours every day. After these fatiguing efforts, he makes his grand toilette and prepares himself to astound the town no less by his personal attractions than by his song. The chief promenade of the city, where he condescends to mete out to highly favored audiences the treasures of his organ, is made the day theater of his glory. Accompanied by his friend, the primo basso, he saunters along very quietly, attracting the gaze of the curious and calling forth the passionate remarks of enthusiastic young ladies who feel it would be a pleasure to die if only they could leave such a gentleman behind on earth to sing tucci addio in the event of their being snatched away in beauty's bloom the basso is the chosen male companion of the tenor's walk firstly because he is no rival and secondly because the gross physical endowments of the former are such as to bring out the latter's symmetrical proportions in such strong relief Sometimes the tenor is seen riding out with a prima donna, with whom he is nearly always a favorite. He is the gentleman who makes himself useful in assisting her to destroy time. He performs for her those thousand and one little delicate attentions for which all women are so truly grateful, and then he sings with her every night those sentimental duos that necessarily produce their effect upon the feminine bosom. Whether walking with his gigantic friend, or riding with his fair one, the tenor behaves himself with the greatest propriety and gentlemanlike bearing, accepting always a certain air which leads us to believe that he thinks too curious old port of himself. He is more grave, but apparently more vain when on foot, than when seated in the carriage with the prima donna, at which time his gesticulation becomes very animated, sometimes very extravagant, though we must always accord it the attraction of gracefulness. The time is thus agreeably walked, ridden and chaffed away, until the hour for the substantial dinner comes to fortify mankind against the slings and arrows of hunger and tedium. Then the tenor does dare to partake of a few, of what are technically called the delicacies of the season. But still a restraint is put upon the appetite, for in a few hours more he must go through labors for which the fullness of satiety would little prepare him. A very worthy and elderly clergyman of the Church of England once made known to the writer his opinion concerning after-dinner sermons, in the following words. I believe, sir, that those sermons preached through the medium of simple roast beef and plum pudding may have been sermons invented by inspiration. They are sure to be enunciated through the agency of the devil. 
so melting strains of solos and duos when sung through the medium of soups pates and fricassees lose their liquidity and film mantle and stagnate into monotony how the tenor is occupied until the hour of supper we shall relate in another chapter suffice it to say that he is at home that is to say on the stage but when supper comes he is no longer prevented by fear of lost voice or any other dire calamity from giving way to the cravings of hunger and thirst he eats with the relish of hunger induced by labor and drinks with the excitement arising from the consciousness that he is what in the language of the turf is styled the favorite the ladies and gentlemen of the troupe usually assemble at supper and it is then that the tenor bestows his gallantries on the prima donna and says many more really complimentary things than are to be found set down in his professional role in concluding this sketch of the tenor the writer would with all due submission to the opinion of the public venture to discover his sentiments upon a question which often agitates society viz whether the tenor is always sick when he announces himself to be seriously indisposed the writer hopes he will not render himself liable to the charge of duplicity or an attempt at evasion when he declares it to be his impression that on the occasion of such announcements the tenor is sometimes seriously indisposed but not always the tenor as we have before observed is but a man and must needs be subject to diseases like other men but when we consider the delicacy of his conformation we must multiply the chances of his liability to indisposition his organization is such that the most trifling irregularity in his general health operates immediately upon the voice now for the tenor in the slightest degree out of tone to appear before a merciless audience consisting of blase opera-goers tyrannical critics hired depreciators and unrelenting musical amateurs would indicate the most utter folly and imbecility the tenor is well aware that a reputation for singing divinely a few nights in the year is more lucrative than a reputation for ability to sing tolerably well taking advantage of all the nights in the space of time it is consequently more advantageous for him to sing occasionally when he feels his voice to be in full force and vigor and his spirits in a sufficiently animated condition to warrant his appearing with every certainty of success when therefore he does not favor the public with the melody of his notes it is generally speaking because without really suffering from a serious attack of disease he considers that his appearance would ensure a future diminution in the offers of the impresario hence the affiches usually proclaim nothing but truth itself when they declare that the tenor is seriously indisposed but then we must be careful to interpret the word indisposition by that one of its significations which is equivalent to disinclination that some compulsory measures might be taken to make these gentlemen who can sing but won't sing more complying and willing to yield to the wishes and requests of managers and audiences the writer has never entertained a doubt the ways and means of effecting such an object he will not take upon himself to devise or advise but will merely state a fact which probably may induce some one to enter upon a thorough examination of the subject and suggest the remedy upon one occasion when the havana troupe was performing in philadelphia and a favorite tenor had been amusing himself by trifling with the public until the patience of that forbearing portion of mankind was entirely exhausted the treasury was beginning to fall extremely low and the wearied-out director was well-nigh driven to desperation 
in this critical juncture of affairs the gentleman who was the legal adviser of the troop was applied to to say whether there was not some compulsory process known to the law by which the refractory tenor could be brought to a recognition of the right of the rest of the company to the use of his voice to attract large audiences and thereby replenish the empty coffers of the treasury upon answer that there existed no such process the distracted director muttered a few maledictions upon our country with a sneer at our free institutions and informed the astonished counsellor that in havana when the tenor was supposed to be feigning sickness the proper authorities were resorted to for the right of examination of the offending party by a physician and a certificate of the state of his health upon the physician certifying that the signer was able to go through his role a few gendarmes were dispatched to seize the delinquent and take such means as would sooner coerce him into a compliance with the stipulations of his professional contract every reasonable excuse however should be made for the necessity the tenor is under to be careful of the delicate organ whereby he gains his subsistence when we reflect how many of these poor fellows lose their voices and are consequently driven to throw themselves on the cold charity of the public or out of the window we must be struck with the inhumanity which would be exercised if the professional singer were excluded from enjoying occasionally by permission what every clergyman in the land can always claim as a right the disease which the hibernian servant expressively denominated the brown gaiters in the throat end of chapter two